Hey everyone, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Influencer Economy, my upcoming book about creativity and thriving and sharing your work in the modern economy. Please go to InfluencerEconomy.com for more information. I have reverse engineered the careers of people like Bill Simmons, Chris Hartwick and Nerdis, the Vlog Brothers, as well as Freddie Wong to show their business steps for how to launch any idea in the modern media age. I've already put all the interviews up online. You can check it out at InfluencerEconomy.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe. Welcome back to the Influencer Economy podcast for episode number 77. My guest, I'm happy to say, is James Altucher. This is Ryan Williams. James Altucher is an entrepreneur, angel investor, author, and blogger. He wrote the best-selling book, Choose Yourself, Be Happy, Make Millions, and Live the Dream. He's written for TechCrunch, The Wall Street Journal, and his blog, jamesaltucher.com, which has attracted over 20 million readers. James' book, Choose Yourself, focuses on how jobs have disappeared, industries have been disrupted, and how everything in the modern business world is being remade before our eyes. He talks about the new tools, economic forces, and what has emerged to make it possible for creators to make millions of dollars and change the world without help. More and more opportunities are rising out of the ashes, and James highlights this in the conversation, as well as he talks about his heartbreaking and inspiring stories from his blog, his podcast, and his writing. This episode has a funny uh, opening glitch that you'll notice. It doesn't affect the sound quality at all. But it's a funny moment where you'll you'll hear it in the first couple minutes. And James recommended I do not edit this episode at all. So you're listening to the whole episode in its entirety and the whole conversation we had, which was almost an hour of time. Without further ado, one of my favorites, James Altucher. Ryan, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's great to be here. I've, I, I see on your podcast that... Uh, almost everyone I know has been on your, I'm like the last person of my list of people I know that is on your podcast. It's funny because I get, I, I got connected to all those people like Tucker Max and Jason Gaynard, AJ Jacobs, all through different people and different avenues. And so it just sort of happened serendipitously that I emailed you at this stage in the game, but I've wanted to have you on for those a while. Three, so. Those three alone are among my closest friends. Like... So, and then you have Adam Grant on, you've, you've, had, you've had, you know, Paul Jarvis, you've had so many people that I know on oh, yeah. the podcast. Paul Jarvis is great. Adam Grant actually was more of the, he was an early guest back when I really didn't even know what I was doing and he agreed to come on for a half hour and did a spectacular job. Well, Adam and I both just spoke one after the other at AJ's uh, family reunion. Oh, that's right. AJ Jacobs at the family reunion and Tucker. I'm about to go to a conference with and uh, give a talk. Yeah, Adam was great. Like his his book, Give and Take, has fundamentally changed how I perceive business and situations, and like actually given me like the belief that actually doing the right thing and helping others gets you farther in life. I agree, and you know what's really good too. Um, Not to throw suggestions at you, but. Chris Hadfield, who's the astronaut who sang Space Oddity on the space station, and he spent 160 days in space. He wrote uh, a book. If I remember the title correctly, it's An Astronaut's Guide to Earth. Uh, And he has some stuff similar to Adam Grant, but more from his experience as an astronaut. And it's it's a great read. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, I just realized something. 
I uh, had not hit record. Uh, <laughs> so I, the, uh, that's okay. I'm recording. Okay, cool. Because the last two minutes, and I uh, spilled coffee on my old computer, and uh, I'm using my wife's right now. So that's okay. I'll anyway, not not only am I going to send you this recording, but you should keep all of this conversation in the podcast. Is my advice. I love it. I never edit this stuff out unless the other person asks me to. Yeah, no, um, never edit. Never edit. No, I, I, your show's great. You're on the Stansberry Network, and uh, I've wanted to have you on because I think Choose Yourself is a phenomenal book. It's uh, what's what's inspiring for me is I'm a writer, and I'm actually going through the process right now of writing my book. I'm talking to agents. Uh, hopefully, some are not listening because I'm strongly considering going the professional self-publishing route that you went through. I think you know, uh, you know, it's very important to realize that in. You're, when an agent takes you on, you're not really the agent's client. Like the the agent sees you once and then maybe never sees you again, but the agent sees the main four or five publishers every day. So those are his real – that's where his interests really lie. So that's – you know, be careful when you have an agent and be careful going the traditional publishing route. Well, one of the remarkable things actually to your point is – like what's inspiring about you know choose yourself and you talk about self publishing books uh, on your own is that I've learned so much from Paul Jarvis and Adam Grant and Tucker Max about growing your email list and helping people and building community and creating bridges that are essentially just me being myself. But I think you know the indirect ROI is that it's opening up channels for me to help market the book once it come out and just having a podcast and getting wired in, into this world. It's such a uh, educational experience about how books are sold and and bought these days. And some of your conversations with Tucker about how you self-publish, choose yourself, and with you know working with his team and editing it yourself. And in the end, I think you spent money on designing your book. Is that right for Choose Yourself and the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, I I wrote the book, but then I hired editors, designers, marketers, you know, the people to lay it out for the Kindle, the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I, before we get into the the deep dive of the self-publishing realm, I want to talk to you about the book itself because what struck me is like you're you're definitely you expose yourself in a way that, you know, you make yourself a lot more vulnerable than a lot of authors, especially in the business environment. And specifically towards the end of your book, you talk about the year of 2012 and talking about failure within that and I'm going to read that year for you, just a few of the bullet points and uh, about times you failed. And you talked about you tried to buy 1 million barrels of oil for someone and failed. Three companies you invested in, you had to write off as zeros. You sold a house and lost $800,000 and you were just glad to get rid of it. Your oldest teenager became a daughter and this resonates with me. And that you said that that's, a, that's actually not a great thing and it's failing because you'll never have those old years again with your, your baby. Your mother accused you of killing your father and will no longer speak to you, and both your sisters no longer speak to you. That's a lifetime within yeah. one year. Yeah, that was 2012. I mean, how did you? And that and that was a good year for me. <laughs> you were things were on the up and up. Um, what what like why why get so real and honest when you write? Because it, it, for me, it's it resonates, and I understand if it does for others. But but why why you writing so frankly about your life? Like why do you do it? Well, a couple of reasons. One is 
there's all these like crappy business books out there. Is it okay for me to say that on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. No, I can. Tucker Max was on, so believe me. Yeah. Can, this is free flowing. So there's all these like really awful business books out there. And uh, actually, I'm even going to take the ones that are not awful. There are a lot of mediocre business books out there. And I sort of feel like, who are these people? And I, I don't ask it in a bad way, but like, Oh, they say, okay, to be a leader, inspire your employees, and uh, to be, uh, you know, a good leader, um, I don't know, give gifts to everybody or uh, always follow up with your clients. Like, who are these people to give them such bland advice? And they don't tell their stories. They don't tell me if they've had experience being readers. If I look in their bios, it looks to me like they were just um, – uh, writers uh, and they're not re- and maybe they were business writers but they never ran businesses i want to feel that there's something deep down that they're drawing from that they're actually telling me this is this was a pain point for me and i'm reaching into that pain point kind of digging through it and analyzing it and then here's what i did or did not do to overcome this problem and i'm going to tell you about it so then it's up to the reader whether this is something they're going to pay attention to or not. So nobody should be giving advice. Even if you're like, you know, Warren Buffett or whatever, don't give advice. Just tell me what you did and what works for you. And, you know, let's say I decide to write about Warren Buffett. I'm not going to just write about, you know, here's what Warren Buffett did. I'm going to say, here's what Warren Buffett did. Here's what I think about what he did. Now, people might not care about what I think about what he did, but that's still no, – everything is in a context. So whenever you read like a biography of someone, it's really in the context of who is writing about that person and what their experiences are and how they're reacting to the biography of that person. So then you give the reader as much information as possible to say, oh, okay uh, this guy or woman went through this experience. Now he or she is um, – explaining what happened and how they came through it. Uh, And I think I'm going to pay attention to that. You know, so you have someone who's like an intro, let's say someone who's introverted, but wants to succeed in business can understand Susan Cain's book quiet because she felt introverted herself and had to deal with this issue. Or, you know, in Adam Grant's case, you know, he, he tell, you know, the reason why his book is such a success it's because he's telling his own personal story as well as all the academic research on give and take. The reason why Freakonomics is such a success is because the writer and, and Stephen Dubner and The Economist, they actually get into the minds of all, all of their subjects rather than just telling the flat-out economics research. So you have, to, you have to also be storytelling so people really resonate with the stories as well as, as opposed to just giving this bland advice. So for you and your books, specifically Choose Yourself, then you were creating a narrative where you had problems and you're showing people how they broke through. Maybe I had problems. Maybe I didn't. I, I, you gave a list of events. I'm not saying any of those things are problems. Many, many people are very grateful when their siblings stop talking to them. <laughs> right. So, so I, I'm, not, I'm not giving any interpretation. It's up to the reader. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not, I, think I, they, I don't say – 2012 was horrible for me. I just said this is what happened to me in 2012. Interesting. It actually was when you were great- just talking right now. I was thinking as an entrepreneur that you were writing a book 
like most oftentimes you build a technology product and you say, there's a problem in the market. I don't think people can get efficient taxis. So then someone's like, let's make an on-demand car service, Uber or Lyft. And I was thinking maybe you were solving your own problems through the book, but it sounds like you're not at all. Well, I am. And then other people can choose, you know, to whether like in that in that particular case, I had a great 2012 because I had already been applying my practice and it didn't the, these were, bad things happen to people all the time. OK, it might not be um, as extreme in some cases and maybe even more extreme, uh, you know, bad thing happened. Bad things happened to me yesterday or last week or whatever, but you have to deal with them and learn to deal with them. So I just kind of told lots of stories. Here's all these different things that happened to me in business, in relationships, more in business, more in relationships, in investing and so on, um, or in publishing, in choosing myself. These are kind of good and bad things that happened to me and how I dealt with them. So I wrote another book, for instance, called The Power of No, It's it, and, and it's about – you know, what happens to you and, and the power that happens to you when you start saying no more often. And it's not because I'm so great at saying no. It's actually because I've always been really bad at saying no to people. And I kind of had to learn for myself, for my own survival, to start saying no to people. And it's, it's you tend to write books about what you yourself want to learn and experience and then what you go through and how you got to the other side. So, you know, you're doing a podcast and a book on the influencer economy. It's not only because you speak to a lot of influencers. I'm assuming it's also because you're built, you're trying really hard and building yourself up and using all the techniques and tactics to make yourself an influencer, which you are, which is how you get all, you know all these people on your podcast and so on. Uh, so, so you, what I'm reading in the the title of your book and podcast, it's not about all these other influencers. It's about you and your quest uh, on the way to becoming an influencer. That that's true. I mean, there's definitely a lot to say around that. Like I talk when I talk to AJ Jacobs, you know, he's a human guinea pig, uh, and he was you know telling me about how his it's like he can only research so much. But he needs to do certain things hands-on, like live biblically for a year, for example. And for me, like I'm getting all these knowledges from people like Paul Jarvis. And you know, he's in a, he's this phrase where he says you need to find your rat people. And because he, he has pet rats. And he has an email newsletter that goes out, as I'm sure you know, every Sunday. And he talks about his rat people as and his rats because the rat people respect the fact that he has pet rats. And you can't uh, please everyone. And you can't go after the mass, mass market of people to buy your products or read your books. But if you find your rap people or the community of folks that actually like your content or that they believe in you at the very least, then that's the type of people you sell your products to. And it doesn't need to be 1 million people. It could be 10,000. But that 10,000 people, like you know, just talking about Kevin Kelly's book I, all the time on this podcast with 1,000 true fans, like if you, you only need 1,000 people to really believe in you. And it all starts just like one person at a time. And so I'm the ultimate case study for the book. And, and I wanted to have published it last year. But I, I think really I, this last year and a half I've spent doing research. And you can't rush something like this. And I wanted to do it the right way. And the, the longer I've taken to, to research folks – so essentially I have um, uh, 20 chapters with people. And they're different self-published authors. They're different uh, – Folks that are YouTubers that have built big million-dollar businesses like Freddie Wong, 
uh, people that I think are undervalued, and uh, and I don't mean that like you know in a disrespectful way. I think I think their stories are so important. Um, but someone like Freddie Wong doesn't fall in the tech sphere because he doesn't raise venture capital and he's not trying to get acquired by Google. And he makes online video, this you know video game high school series, which appeals to millennial gamers. But he doesn't he doesn't appeal to Hollywood because he crowdfunded, and so he doesn't get picked up by these media outlets. So I feel like there's this this great way, like in you know choose yourself. It's like you got to pick where you fit in the world and just define your own terms. And I feel like I'll, there's a lot of themes in your book that completely resonated me with with the influencer economy. Absolutely, like. In 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 what you're calling the influencer economy, and I like that phrase a lot. You know, you build you build your own platform rather than kind of outsourcing platform to the gatekeepers of platform. So so a great example is um, well, a great example is in publishing. So I'm, I could publish my book and publish it to my platform, and uh, you know, and a lot of people hate the word platform. I don't care. It's a it's a nice word to describe. It. I just hosted a, an event at South by Southwest called "How to Build Your Platform," and a lot of people came. And they the word resonates. I mean, that's because it's no longer about social media. I believe it's about content and connections and people. And you can't just tweet your way through, you know, building a business. You have to build content and structure and create habits for people to come back and you know see your YouTube videos, listen to your podcast, read your work on the blog, that, that, all, all stuff you know. Yeah, that's totally true. Like, I think the word platform has evolved uh, in some ways the same way Twitter has evolved. Like, at first, people would tweet, like, what they had for lunch. Now, there's kind of this ongoing world conversation that's happening. And so Twitter sort of evolved as as a medium. And the word platform has evolved, too. It's not just kind of people who follow you uh, on these different social media platforms. It's really people who you engage with and who respect the message or, you, or who help you share a message that you have and you help them share the message they have. And that's a platform. I almost prefer to call it like a scene, like what's your what's your scene? Because that helps build your platform as well. So, so um, but, but the influencer, well, well so, so I can publish to my platform and then if my book is good, uh, then word of mouth will keep keep it going, and if my book is not so good, then it'll I, I need to figure out other ways to take advantage of having a published book. Uh, whereas if you publish to a publisher, they tell you, oh, we have this huge platform, but they don't really like what what does the brand Random House mean or Simon and Schuster? These brand those those brands don't stand for anything. There's no message. So they don't really have a platform. They have like an old school platform where they'll get your book in bookstores. But now more people are reading books through ebooks and audiobooks than bookstores. So I don't know what, you know, so what the only other thing publishers can do for you is give you an advance. Um, but advances on average are, are going down. So kind of the use for, for publishers is, is going way down. Totally. They're, it's almost like where the music industry was a few years ago, back when you would, you know, throw out and drop an album. And then it'll get on a radio. It would be sold in stores. Then iTunes came around and it was sold. You know, you still had like twelve tracks on iTunes, and now you just you stream and you listen to one or two tracks, which you normally do did on an album anyway. So if like the new, like when the Strokes album came out, like in the early two thousands, late nineties, I listened to that whole album back to back. Or Wilco, when that came out, listened to the whole album back to back for uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But really, the norm is you listen to that hit single. And I feel like with books, it's almost like you need to be making content all the time anyway, like you do with your blog, you do with your podcast. 
And then, you know, the whole influencer model, I, I teach a class. It's about how to sell uh, products directly to your audience. And we just talk about tactics, you know, building an email list and, you know, helping to cultivate a community where you're creating consistent content. And there's, there's different tracks and habits that you can build for yourself. So people know that you're, you're in this for the long haul. Cause I think a lot of people, what I've noticed even with podcasts is people email me and say, Hey, I want to start a show. And they're not concerned. They don't understand that they need to build a scene or they need to build a platform. They just wait and they think that if they try something that suddenly you'll catch fire. But as you know, it's, I mean, it's take, it takes years. It takes years like of hard work, of lonely work. And you get one new email a week and you're excited. But, you know, one new subscriber on iTunes and you're fired up. And it's just not something that can happen quickly. So the whole platform building it's just like you have to be all in or all out. You can't really halfway do it because it's just not going to work. Right, and it, and it's never been different for, from that. Like people say, oh, well, I'm an artist, so I'm just going to focus on painting or writing or whatever. It, it's never really been the case that an artist can just say that. Like, you know, for a thousand years, artists needed, um, you know, the Medicis to kind of uh, – support them or Mozart needed to be, you know, in the emperor's, uh, you know, court to, to, to support his music. Uh, you know, then we needed publishers, but now we need to build a platform. So instead of kind of cultivating the publishers, which is a lot of work, right? To, to get a publisher means you have to, um, write a book, uh, sell yourself, sell your message and yourself and your book to an agent uh, who then proceeds to sell it to a publisher Then, and you have to meet all the publishers. Then you have to go in and meet the publishers. Then there's countless meetings and edits and change. Like, it's, not, it's never an easy process. Um, I think it's a more pleasant process when you quote-unquote choose yourself and you choose your own platform. You build, you build your own platform by directly connecting with the people who subscribe to your message and, and who you subscribe to their message. Again, a platform is not one to many. It's many to many. Like uh, 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 we were talking earlier about how, you know, I know a lot of the people on your podcast in part, it's because I've like worked with them in, in some capacity, you know, like AJ, we just spoke about I spoke at his, you know, he, he, he's writing a book about the world's largest family reunion. I spoke at the world's largest family reunion right after Adam Grant spoke at it, you know, and Tucker, who we spoke about, he, you know, Tucker and I have had a thousand conversations about self-publishing and, you know, he's like the world's expert on publishing. So all, all, all these guys I've like, I'm not only friends with, but I've worked with them where we, we form a scene. And, you know, a great book I'm reading right now um, by Judd Apatow, you know, the movie director. Yes. Um, he was – he's obviously a very funny guy. All his movies are great. Uh, he also did a TV series that was great, Freaks and Geeks. He wrote on the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Um, Freaks and Geeks is so good. Yeah, it was so good. Kind of like a, a cult favorite because it was canceled before the season was even over, but – it was was one of the best TV series ever, and anyway, he wrote a he wrote a book that just came out two days ago um, or three days ago called Sick in the Head, where he just simply interviews um, all of these comedians. And one of the things you realize while he's interviewing them, he's interviewing you know Seinfeld, Jim Carrey, Ben Stiller, 
Louis C.K., Amy Schumer. One thing you realize as he's interviewing them is he's worked with all of them or worked side by side with all of them. Uh, and uh, it's because, it's, again, not only were these comedians in, to some extent his platform, but they were his scene. And that's what that's contributed just as much to his success as having, you know, a, a, an audience that liked him was also having all of these really great comedians who were supportive of his success and whose success he was supportive of. So you know, no, you know, there's that saying, no man is an island. There's also the myth of the lone genius. You know, guys like like Judd Apatow or Jerry Seinfeld or, or anybody, n- nobody would have made would have been successful without their scene. That's so fascinating because I think I totally agree. And it's like this. It's underrated that you people think you can do it on your own, and it's. It's noble to try to do it by yourself, but you almost need a community of folks in some ways that either you come up together, like I don't want to use the Rat Pack as the example because that's a very extreme case, but you need your your group, your your cohort, your your system of, of people that you, you all come up at the same time or around the same time or you've helped each other along the way. And that's like your your bond where then you, you've gone through this war, and, or, and I don't like using the war metaphor lightly, but you've gone through this difficult time period where you've all struggled and then you've had some success and you realize like, oh, wow, we did this, you know, around the same time. And then you keep building and building off of that. Or you, or you mentor someone. I feel like Adam Grant's philosophy about just helping people and the data he did around people that work in offices, like there's all these new money ball type stats that people that mentor others at the office, people that stay late to work extra hard on projects, people that come in early to work hard on projects like all these stats and data points that he actually applied metrics to is so fascinating because mentoring other people or giving back or paying it forward to to folks that are just starting out now like those are people that are part of your team and it seems like that's something that you it's like you think theoretically oh that makes sense but until you actually step back and look at it like that's the critical moments of your success like there's really a handful of people in life i think that open up some of the biggest doors and some of those people you just you don't even realize it's happening and the next thing you know like you've walked through it and you've you've chosen yourself or you've you've become who you are in this new context that would have never been possible if you didn't have that seam of people to help you right and don't forget there's not only one door like at any given point you might be work- going through 10 doors so for instance you're working on a book but you have a podcast and the podcast maybe well who knows where that goes maybe when you have enough episodes, it'll be a, uh, you'll be doing a podcast, but you'll also be doing a, a channel on Sirius XM. Like who knows? Just we don't know what how these things are going to evolve. Um, and, and meanwhile, your book might evolve into also doing a newsletter, uh, or again, who, or or it might evolve into you having a speaking career or a consulting career or being on the board of directors of of any of the companies involved with the people you're interviewing on your podcast. So everything's connected and there's never any one thing you're going to do. Like you're not aiming all of this activity towards publishing one book. You're just aiming all of this to whatever. You're doing the best you can now and it's Absolutely. just going to take the next step, which, which you don't, you can't even predict. No idea what it's going to be. We're, I'm making it up mostly as I go along. And I just had the blind faith. Luckily, I've married well. And uh, my wife is incredibly supportive of me. That's very so, – that's actually one of the most important things you can do. And um, 
Like I, I, my wife is incredibly supportive. We work together on on almost everything. I, I also, yeah, you guys. She's on your podcast, and you yeah, we do a podcast together. together. I just helped her with uh, a consulting gig that she was doing. She helps me with all of my stuff. Another great example is, you know, and I'm just going to keep referring to guests on your podcast, but like Tucker <laughs> just got married and had a kid. And what happens? Well, suddenly he's building a business. Like yep. he, he's tried to build businesses before. Now he's now I see it. This is going to be it for him. This is a really good business. And I attribute it to the fact that he settled down. I read a, I read an article a while back that was talking about like one of the underrated factors of startup founder success is having a partner who's uh who's supportive and on board and helps you get through the the ups and downs of founding a company. Yeah, because, you know, starting a company is really, really hard. Like, people think you should either be an employee or an entrepreneur. A, there's a lot of things in between being an employee and an entrepreneur. B, uh, an uh, entrepreneur is just like being an employee, except you created your own company so you know, you be, and you made yourself have a job at it. And, but, but the worst thing is there's a known rate of failure. You're, you, you have an 85% chance of failing. So being an entrepreneur is incredibly difficult. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be one or somebody shouldn't be one. It's just never underestimate how difficult well, it is. Well, I thought actually uh, to say something about your book is I, I, I laughed out loud when you talked about Justin Timberlake and the social network where, you know what's cool? A billion-dollar company you know, is this famous line. And you were saying, actually, you know what's cool? A million dollars. Like st- straight up, like if someone gave anyone a million dollars, they'd be excited about it. And there's this narrative that resonates. I live in Los Angeles, especially when that movie came out, where I worked for a lot of different startups helping, you know, and they were fanatical about the billion dollar company <laughs> or the billion dollar idea. Yeah, like, there's very is- few companies that that sell for a billion. Like if you think about like normal economics, in order for a company to sell for a billion – you probably need, a, a, you know, in, a, in, in the real world, not in kind of like um, uh, sort of a straight up, you know, boom world, but like in the regular world of business, you probably need about $100 million in steady profits every year to be worth a billion dollars after like, let's say 10 or 20 years. Now, in Silicon Valley, that's not the case because there's great anticipation of future profits. Uh, so it's unclear. I'm not saying there, I don't think there's a bubble or anything. It's just every industry kind of catches its wave at different periods. So that's another way to be worth a billion. But like the classic way to be worth a billion is to have a hundred million a year in profits, which is incredibly difficult to do. Like very few companies, you know, a handful of companies have that kind of profits. Yeah. It's, 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 it's unrealistic. And there's this narrative that people think they should be an entrepreneur or they should start their own tech company and in a lot of ways, the world doesn't really need mobile apps anymore. Like I think we have enough apps that have met our needs that people that put their resources and creativity that way are going to find more and more frustration. The market is more crowded. And I, I personally think the new product, the new tech product is the book, is the podcast, is the content. And that's really where we're going is that you know a few years ago, everyone would say, oh, I want to build a mobile app in Los Angeles. And now – I think the trend will become people will say, I need to build that podcast or that book I want to write. It's now easier. There's book in a box. I have services where you know, you can publish on your own. Like, I think the new tech product is the content product. Yeah, that could be. I, you know, I, I am not smart enough to predict. Um, 
I mean, I certainly enjoy writing and podcasting, and I always try to figure out what the business models are around around these things. Uh, and, and they're tough business models to crack, as as are monetizing Twitter or you know these large big ideas, you know, startups. Right, like like Twitter's a great example where. Twitter's obviously a great business. I mean, I'm staring at a Twitter screen this very second, and you, not that it distracts me from this. It just happens to be on the screen in front of me. It was the last thing I looked at before starting the podcast. And, and, uh, and uh, at Dick C, Dick Costello, he wrote the uh, forward for your book. Yeah, exactly. So t- I love Twitter. Twitter's a great business. Uh, I think it's been actually very well managed, and um, despite all the kind of current volatility in management – and but is it worth twenty six billion dollars? I think the the world doesn't know. So I think that's where some of the confusion comes in. But separating out valuation from business, Twitter's like exactly where it should be. They they, they they've built into a, a good um, you know both journalistic and artistic medium. And when he wrote the book uh, forward, was that something that you know you'd known him for a while? Because I imagine that it helped. You know, give you some social proof in the business world. Like, was the, two questions. One is, had, had you known him a while? And second one was, like, did it give you some social proof? So yes and yes, but I'm not really the type of person. Like, it's very and and I I wish this wasn't true about myself, but it's very hard for me to ask people for a favor. And this was yeah, a me case. Too. Excuse me. Me too. Yeah, and so this was a case where I was asking the CEO of Twitter. Okay, one of the biggest social media companies in the world. Even though I knew him, we've had we had breakfast a whole bunch of times, and we knew each other. I, if I went out there, I would visit him. If he went out to New York, he'd visit me. But uh, it it was very very hard. It probably took me six hours to compose a three line email asking him to write the forward, and I was like practically, <laughs> practically crying. I was so stressed doing it. Yeah, and. Um, he said, uh, you know, I don't – I never do this, but of course for you, I will do this. And then that's it. Then I didn't hear from him that's again. Great. And, you know, I really needed to publish the book. Like, and I – so I finally wrote to him and said, don't worry about it. I'm just I, – I, I don't even want a forward. I don't even need a forward. Like I was just nice about it. You know, no hard feelings. Give me a call next time you're in the city. Um, and uh, then I watched a video uh, of a speech he made and I – Basically said, you know, I wrote back to him right away and I said, this was like at two in the morning. Uh, I said, you know, I, I just watched this speech you made. It's really great. Like, you know, you say some things that fit so much my message. And he and he was like, oh, I'm glad you like that speech. I'm really sorry about the forward. Uh, is there anything I can do? And I'm like, well, how about uh, let's kind of take a chunk of this speech and I'll combine it with, you know, some other stuff that you've done and uh, – That'll be the forward, and he said, "That's great, do it." <laughs> so, He's making it easier for him. Yeah, so I, I made it as easy as possible, and so that's. He's the busy, you know, but he wants to do it. He he approved it, and uh, you know, he signed off on the final on the final version, of course. And uh, but I was really happy. He 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 then ended up writing the forward, but uh, but it was hard for me. And I I actually thought about um, my wife and I both thought about writing a book called The Power of Ask, just because we had to kind of go through so many different. <laughs> techniques in our lives to ask people things well i've actually emailed you a few times to be on the podcast oh yeah let me see i've emailed you at least one other time i'm gonna i'm gonna search my emails and then um i emailed you did i respond i responded to the last one obviously oh yeah definitely well this one had more context because 
AJ recommended I reach out to you. The other one was completely blind. Like I have, I have the art of the podcast ask email. Actually, I do want to hear about um, the social proof part, but you just reminded me of a story just to talk about the power of ask. So uh, Willie Geist from the Today Show, he was on my podcast and we're friends from college and everyone kept asking me like, when are you going to get Willie on the show? And I had like four episodes up and I'm like, I'm not going to ask Willie because I'm the same way. I don't want to ask for a favor. I feel like I'd rather just ask you as much as a a lateral way as possible where suddenly you're not helping me because if you ask for too much of a favor from someone, then it feels like they're putting themselves out and then it's hard to maintain a relationship in some ways because if you screw up the favor, you know, it just seems like there's – for me, I don't like the risk. I'd rather ask at the right time and so I'm all about timing with with people and so I I had the same dilemma. I'm like, what do I do? But I, I, I also I'm also big in the context with the ask. Like for you, you know, directly I reached out after AJ had recommended I talk to you. And with Willie, you know, we were going to go back to Vanderbilt for college, and we, I was at homecoming with a bunch of his friends, and I talked to them. And so I reached out and said, "Hey, I just saw your buddies at homecoming. We'd love to get you in the podcast. I'm going to New York in a few weeks." And he wrote back, and you know, two minutes, happy to do it. You know, come to Thirty Rock, and we'll talk. And I also had context because the book that he wrote called Good Talk Dad, um, it's about him and his dad, Bill Geist, and growing up together and you know, as a father-son in their relationship. It's really funny. Um, he wrote a, a chapter about our fraternity and this party we had, whatever. It was really funny. And so I wanted to talk about that as well, and I knew like our college friends would appreciate it. And then I also have a podcast, and I felt like I talked to guys like Adam Grant who actually had an appearance on the Today Show where Willie Geist interviewed him. So I had like three direct contextual reasons for me to reach out. And I always feel like that's, um, at least for my style, important because context is so integral when you're trying to get someone to help you or you are trying to somehow, you know, convince them to be a part of uh, something big that you're working on that you really strongly believe in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I had a similar experience. I I grew up with uh, Jim Norton from from fourth grade on. He's a, a comedian. Yeah, oh, he's on Opie and Anthony. And- yeah, yeah, he replaced, um, I guess, either Anthony. Oh, yeah, he replaced Anthony. And um, uh, he's like, he's probably one of the more like blue, you know, pushing the envelope of like, of a uh, of obscenity comedian out there. Oh, yeah. And we were, I mean, we were, knew each other very well. Like, we literally grew up together. And, uh, but, I, but still, I was afraid to ask him to come on my podcast. But I shouldn't have been. You know, sometimes the the fear is irrational. Like maybe you shouldn't have been so nervous about asking your friend to be on your podcast. Like 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 Jim when I, I literally from fourth grade to twelfth grade we grew up together, and I was always telling him we should be a comedian. Like he everybody was telling him that he was. So oh really? Is that funny back then? Oh my god! The first day he moved into town and he started school in the middle of the year, so it's like what that awkward period. Uh, but the second he sat down and he had to introduce himself to everybody, he was so funny. The entire class was cracking up. And the first thing we all said to him, even the teachers, like, you're going to be a professional comedian when you grow up. So it's interesting. A lot of people think they're funny. Um, but it's interesting to see the difference between funny and someone who's really got like the skill. I used to do stand up comedy and me laughing with you in a conversation I used to do open mics on, in Washington, D.C., and I, my peak was the, the D.C. improv. And 
me being funny with you, you being funny with me is so different than you being funny in front of 50 strangers that had a bad day of work, three beers in, and are pissed off that, you know, they've spent 10 bucks on a comedy show where they're not laughing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you have to have a certain uh, presence about you that, you know, you're really in some ways born with, or you have to work really hard to train to get. Yeah. I think, I think both. I mean, I think, um, if, if you, you know, the, I always really think about what's the relationship between talent and training and, uh, uh, in cases of like mastery. And I really think talent is just the tiny spark, uh, that, you know, lights the fire and it's the, the most of the fire is really training. And so, so Jim had that talent, which convinced him, boy, I really need to, to do this. But then it's 20 years of hard work after that. So for your writing, then how, how much of you, you wrote for the street.com, you know, you've been writing in, in the business world, you know, since what the, I think the early 2000s. Like, you know, so when you started to branch out from business writing uh, for more um, like traditional publishers like The Street and then doing it more like personnel-based, anecdotal-based, uh, like what was that transition like? And were you good right away or does it matter if you're good if you're writing from the heart? Um, so a, cu- a couple different answers. One is – uh, in the early 90s, actually, I spent a lot of time writing uh, really bad fiction. So when you first love something, of course, you're going to do it poorly because you love it. So you you know what the best should be like. But when you're just starting, you can't be the best. So you see the gap between what you're doing and what the best really is. So I was really – so in the early 90s, I was working really, really hard at being a good fiction writer and I would read nonstop fiction, like high quality fiction, and uh, and I was just I was writing all day long, every day, uh, without a break. I mean, I got thrown out of graduate school. I went from job to job. Like all I would do is is write. And then I went. What did you go to grad school for? I went to grad school for computer science. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I went from from that lifestyle to working at HBO, uh, where I thought I would get contacts in the writing business, but I still continue to write. And then for a few years only, really, I stopped to do uh, some business stuff. And then I kind of then combined my writing interests with my business interests. And and then later on, my writing just became much more, I combined my nonfiction writing with kind of that fictional style. So I have this kind of very, very uh, personal style. But I look back at my posts from like four or five years ago and some of them are good, and some of them I can easily see how I would improve, and, and I rewrite them and post them as improved versions uh, in some cases. So, so, so I, it's been I, an I, evolution I, all along. Like I think uh, I'm always I always see writing that's better than mine, and I always try to get I always try to get as good as possible. How many hours a week do you spend writing? Uh, I mean, already today I've spent six hours writing. And in. Is that for the blog or are you writing other concepts and ideas? Um, I wrote two posts on Quora. I wrote two posts for my blog or three posts for my blog. One post I wrote for my blog I'll never publish. I just wrote it for the fun of it. And uh, I, I, have, I have thousands of unpublished posts in my, for my blog. Where, where are they sitting? Just like in a file folder on your computer? No, like in – you know how in um, – WordPress, there's like an admin section. They're just kind of in my drafts. Oh, they're in the drafts folder. Yeah, like I could pull, I could hit publish on any of them, but 
sometimes I don't know if that's the direction I want to go. And then I, I, but I need to keep practicing. I need, you know, you can't, you can't stand still. Like you always have to try new things that are scary. And, you know, sometimes things are, uh, I, 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 on the one hand, I won't publish something that I'm not scared to publish. I, 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 I want to be a little nervous, but I don't want to be like so scared. I'm thinking this is the stupidest thing in the world. So, but I just, I always practice. Well, let's talk about that article um, about your daughter and how okay. she, you're hoping that, you know, she, she's becomes a lesbian. And I just have my own daughter who's born at a half right now and it resonates. <laughs> Yeah, you said, so, that, you said you got a lot some backlash on that. Yeah, like a lot of people, even friends of mine, were like, "Dude, that was a good article, but bad title." Or a lot of people were, I don't, I don't know who. Everybody was having a problem. Feminists were having a problem. Non-feminists were having a problem. Uh, some for some reason, everyone was having a problem. Um, but I was just again talking from my own heart and experience. Like, a you know. Guys are really not that great from my experience. Like just most guys suck, you know, and I have as, as well in, in my life. And I, I wrote that after a particular experience where uh, my daughter, I, I had gone to a friend of mine's birthday party and his son kind of made a pass at my 13-year-old daughter or 12-year-old daughter at the time. And uh, uh, it was really, I had to like jump in and like, get this kid who was partially, you know, had some problems, he had some behavior problems. I had to push him away um, from my daughter. And just like guys suck from like the age of 10 on. And so uh, I wrote that article. Yeah, funny. I talked to my wife's cousins who are in college and we're talking about how they're not on Tinder. And they're, they said, why would I be on Tinder? Like college guys are the worst. You know, <laughs> yeah. I have to deal with them in person. Why would I want to deal with them on my mobile phone? Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine when my kids are that age. For one thing, I hope they don't go to college, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Are you, did you, have you written about that? Oh, yeah. I don't want um, – I, I don't think college is good for anybody in, in today's day and age. It's different maybe 5, 10, 20 years ago. Well, actually – I, I first started writing this in 2005, so I'm, it, it's different 20, 25 years ago. But in the past 10 years, nobody, no, nobody should be going to college. Is that because you think they can get technical skills on their own without paying for them? They, they can get any skills they want on their own without paying for them. And uh, student loan debt now is $1.5 yeah. trillion. Dollars. Like, like, you know, my kids show me colleges they want to go to. It's like... I've never seen such prices before. You know, the college tuition have, has gone up faster than inflation every single year since 1977. So not just on average, every single year tuitions have gone up faster than inflation. So who is who is paying for all this stuff? What ends up happening is um, the government says, oh, don't worry about it. We'll give you the money. And then then the government says, oh, you have to pay this back. I, you, you can't. You can't switch careers now. We just paid for you to have a career as a nurse or a lawyer. You can't switch careers now. Uh, you have to pay us back first. And they won't let you get w rid of that debt in bankruptcy or anything. They'll seize your assets and they'll, they'll seize your straight from your income, even if you declare bankruptcy. And, and, and student loan debt comes before IRS debt even, and uh, according to the government. So they're, they're, they're brutal. And meanwhile, the average person in today's world switches careers 14 different times. So it's we're, we're creating a generation of, of young people who are 
totally screwed. And I asked my kids, they they don't believe me, of course, because they're being rebellious. And they say, well, you have to have a, that piece of paper. This is my 13-year-old arguing with me now. You have to have that piece of paper to get a job. And I'm like, who is even telling you this? Like, is it a guidance counselor? Because they're paid to tell you this because that's how their school gets funding from the government is by how many kids go to college from their school. So don't – you know, question the agenda. I have no agenda. I want what's best for my 13-year-old. So – Question the agenda of the people who tell you these things. Is Maybe it's someone who spent a lot of money on college, so they want to justify their own choice by telling you to go to college. You know, just question everything. Because yeah, I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Well, I told her, whatever you want to be in life, you could you could tell me anything you want to be in life, even a doctor, and I will help you figure out how to get a good amount of your training much faster, much cheaper, totally legally, without immediately going into college uh, when you're 18 and have no clue what you want to do in your life. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you're right. There's so many other avenues and it's all about the agenda of someone who's got their, their job as a college counselor is to recommend colleges because that's what they get paid for to help you get into colleges. Like with that, their whole business world revolves around you going to college. Right. And then, you know, funny thing is, so then, a question that every 100% of people ask me this question. Well, do you want to be operated on? Do you want to have brain surgery? Uh, or no, they, they ask this. Would you rather have brain surgery from someone who went to Harvard Medical School or from someone who didn't go to college? And, it, you know, it's totally a bogus question because we're not talking about me. We're talking – I went – you know, I already uh, – I'm not talking about my happiness. I'm talking about the happiness of a child right now who's 18 years old. So – uh, you know, who cares who operates on me? I'm, I want my daughters to be happy, so I don't want them to go to college. Like that's really the question. It's it's not. I don't want to force a bunch of kids to like go to college just so I could have brain surgery later on. Like I would just <laughs> as soon you know not have brain surgery. Just let me I'm, die or whatever. I'm pretty confident that we'll have brain surgeons that are like robots in ten years. So yeah, everything. <laughs> you know, we don't. And anyway, if someone – I would rather have someone who did a 1,000 brain surgeries than someone who just graduated yeah. Harvard uh, Medical School. And then they'll say, well, you need a degree. That, that's just a law. So, OK, yeah. if the law changed you're, – you're talking about something that's a law. I don't want anyone to break the law. But – and I don't want my children to break the law. But I want my children to have the best opportunity for success. They don't want to be doctors, so they shouldn't go to college because – if by law their chosen profession doesn't require them, why should they spend $200,000 on, on getting into debt? So have you always thought like this way of like let's challenge the status quo of how people think conventionally? Like why are we going to college? Who's going to – in the end, is the government making this decision for us because they're the ones that are you know controlling the loans? Is it – you know, you're talking about just the college counselor in general. You talk about how – I think the quote was your boss – doesn't give a shit about you or your boss doesn't care about you when you work at a corporation, like you mentioned in your, in your book about freelancers and empowering yourself to control your own career. Like, have you always, you know, sort of challenged the conventional thinking even throughout your life? No, not at all. Which is, which is in part how I came to this is I realized how many mistakes I made. You realize that you make a mistake, not when you're in the middle of the mistake, but afterwards. And, and then you try different things and you realize, Oh, you know, this worked and this didn't. So for instance, I've owned a house, but I'm, I don't think anyone should ever buy a house. I think it's like 
the most horrible decision you can make is to buy a house. Um, no one should go to college. I went to college. Uh, I don't think, I think it's a horrible decision to make to go to college. Uh, I've been an employee. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a solopreneur, you know, meaning kind of like doing my own thing and having multiple sources of income. Uh, so I kind of have experience across the full spectrum. And, you know, speaking of college, you know, I majored in computer science. I, my first job as a programmer uh, was outside of the academic context was at HBO. And I was, here I had majored in computer science at an Ivy League school. Then I went to one of the best, like probably the top three grad school in the country for computer science. And then I get a job. At what H- was that? Excuse me? Where you went to, would you go to Carnegie Mellon? Yeah, I went to Carnegie Mellon for computer science. Uh, uh, great grad school, like a billion different companies have come out of, of like everybody I went to class with became a billionaire after that, uh, except me. Uh, cause I got thrown out probably, but, uh, then I get a job at HBO <laughs> Wait, and did, did you get thrown out? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was writing fiction every day. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so, uh, but my, my, like the guys, was, it, always, was it a mistake to go there? You think? Um, no, because, uh, I mean, in, it's hard to say, I don't know if anything is, is, you, you know, I can't predict what it would have happened like otherwise. Do you think that shapes your opinion about college in general? That maybe it's partially you know, oh, influenced yeah, because, by the Oh yeah, because because yeah. of what I'm about to tell you. So then I, I so so I've I had like maybe my ten thousand hours of programming experience between college and grad school. Then I get a job in the real world, and my programming was so bad they actually had to send me to a remedial school for programming just so I could learn the basic skills to keep my job. And I was the lowest guy. Here I had just come from grad school at like one of the best places and, and, and so on. And I was the lowest guy on the totem pole, but still I was so bad uh, that I, they were either going to fire me and about or they said, why don't you go two months to – I had to go down to um, this, these classes that AT&T w- was teaching about programming in order to catch up to everybody I was working with. So, so all, the, all that money I spent – you know, and I, I paid for my college completely um, and paid back my debt completely. Uh, and then I grad school, I had a scholarship uh, because I was so good at programming. I had a full scholarship and um, none of that, all of that was worthless. Like I had to actually go to remedial school to learn how to program afterwards. And just start from the very, very beginning. From the very beginning. I mean, you're not even saying like you're, you had to like take a crash course for – no, yeah. I, I learned uh, no skills that were useful in the real world. Yeah, that's that's common. I, I, I built an operating system, you know, while in grad school, but it still wasn't useful for what actually I actually had to do in the real world. And and now most you know, most colleges like I had somewhat of a practical major, it was organizational development, how people interact in a business environment. Um, but a lot of people major in history and you know, art history. And okay, but I, okay. I had the most practical major of all. I was a computer programmer in, right, right, <laughs> when, right when the internet out. was blowing up. <laughs> like I was it and yet I still didn't get any useful skills. Yeah. Um, well, so I want to wrap up in a, in a second, but I, I wanted to just talk to you about advice you have for people listening because I think, you know, we hearing your story, it's phenomenal. I mean, this is, I love this interview. This is what I really liked about it. I like when we were discussing about, the influencer economy and just people in general, like 
we all have this hope or this thought that we don't know where it's, life's going to end up. It just happens. We work hard, whether it's my podcast, your writing, and like that's like the beauty of you know choosing yourself or you know trying to build out your own platform. Or, or did you say seem or seen? Seem right? Like S E A M. Okay, scene. That's what I thought. Okay, S C E N E. So building out your own scene, like all these great, like it's almost like you sort of wake up and you don't know what's going to happen the next day. And when you work a traditional job or you work in methods where you're not necessarily questioning why you're there, whether it's college, professionally, even you know marriage, it's it's like you 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 wake up and it's very ordinary. It's the same thing. But if you if you go after it, you don't know what to expect. And I think there's there's something here that you capture with your writing and with your podcast where you're very smart. You have a lot of life experiences that have allowed you the opportunity now to write and to podcast. And you're in a position where you've had so much success and also failure that it, the success is rounded out. Like how, how would you, you know, give guidance to someone who's, you know, maybe in their twenties or, or hasn't had the life experience you have that is choosing themselves and just realizing, oh my God, this is like such a long slog. Like I can't get through, I can't make a podcast with a following. I can't write a book or I can't even choose myself with my career because I need, you know, a few, because everyone needs a few years experience of working professionally, right? So. Well, well, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But the, the first thing is don't get into that kind of um, analysis paralysis. Like I can't, I can't, I can't. But there's a way to avoid that. And the way is, the, you know, to understand the, the best predictor of a successful tomorrow, and I, I don't mean tomorrow in this generic future sense, I mean tomorrow. The best predictor of a successful tomorrow is having a successful today. And the only way to have a successful today, and I think anybody would agree to what I'm about to say, is make sure I try to improve a little bit in my physical health. So physical health is, you know, eating well, sleeping well, exercising. Uh, my emotional, oh, I also improve a little in my emotional health. So, you know, there's a saying, be the, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So start to uh, disengage from people who aren't so good for you and re-engage or engage with people who are, you know, who you respect and trust and who inspire you and so on. So that's emotional health. Uh, creativity, try to, if, if at the very least, sit down with a pad every day and write down 10 ideas. So today I wrote down 10 ideas for how Facebook could be better. I'm not going to send it to Facebook. It's just I'm exercising this creativity muscle. I also obviously spent some time writing today. Uh, so so I, I work a lot on that. And then um, gratitude. So the important thing about gratitude is not this kind of, uh, oh, it's always good to be grateful for your family and all that. It just – you can't be uh, grateful and anxious at the same time. And too many people are, you know, do what I call time, too many people do what I call time travel, uh, which is they're either regretting the past or they're anxious about the future. But that's only going to drain your strength from today. So the way to avoid time traveling is to just be grateful for what you have now. So whenever you notice you're time traveling, just say, okay, I'm time traveling. I'm going to think of three things really quickly that I'm grateful for right now. That's like a cognitive therapy. I guess so. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Now I went to therapy for, I went to cognitive therapy once and they're all about the moments and like looking like in the, in the present as to like what you're, you've accomplished today or this hour or what you're proud of at this very place in time versus 
the paralysis. Right, because there's no way when I, when I started doing these four kind of aspects of health, I call this a, a daily practice for me. When I started doing that, my every six months, my life is not only completely different, but totally would have been totally unpredictable. So I can't even describe how it changes so much every six months, and, but it just does. And so that's why, oh, I can't write a book because I'm not going to blah, blah, blah for 20 years. You just don't know. Just focus on today what you what you what you what feeds your creativity, what feeds your emotional health, what feeds your physical health, what feeds your gratitude, and you're going to be fine five years from now. I mean, you're going to be better 10 years from now. It's all going to be good. And it's not a race. You're not trying to sprint to this finish line tomorrow. There's, there's never a race. You know, yeah. you're, 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 you're dead tomorrow. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, that's a, that's a really good note to end on. I think, uh, I think this has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm really glad we got to, to chat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And um, uh, uh, good luck on, on all of your podcast guests. You, you have a great list. The great list. I got a, a book I'm in the process of writing. I'll keep you updated on that. And, Definitely. Uh, and if you ever write the article about the art of the ask or the, the uh, book around asking for, for help or for favors, I would love to participate. Okay, excellent. Thank you. I think that's a great idea. So take care, my friend. Thank you so much. I'll let you know when it's up. Okay. Talk to you later, Ryan. That was James Altucher for episode number 77 of the podcast. Really excited that you were here for this episode and that you've made it this far into the conversation. Make sure you check out James's website, jamesaltucher.com. I highly recommend his book, Choose Yourself which is available on Amazon and also on his website. And his podcast, Ask Altucher, as well as The James Altucher Show, are fantastic. He's done a great job of branding himself. And his name is very well respected, so it's super grateful to have him on the show. Quick updates for me. The book is going to come out end of February. I'm starting to book speaking engagements for colleges and businesses. And we'll be launching my Amazon presale page by Christmas time for the holiday season, working on the book cover right now. I think I'm going with the tagline about creativity for the book. I think that's really the focus of the last couple of years of research is how people create uh, for themselves, harness their creativity by just starting and building community and being accessible. So anyway, enough about the book. I can't wait to get it out so I don't have to give these updates anymore and that you will have the book in your hand or at the very least have pre-ordered it and you told all your friends about it. Has some great episodes coming up with Derek Seavers. Uh, who did a great TED Talk about how to build a movement. Hank Green of the Vlog Brothers, who's also John Green's brother, who wrote A Fault in the Stars, and they both founded VidCon together. Also, uh, Rishi K, who has a great podcast called Song Exploder. Talk to him as well. So I'm saving those up probably for the new year where I can launch them all together and do my rebrand for the upcoming Rhino Show, which is going to be the name of the podcast when we get back from the holidays, doing a, a relaunch with a new logo, new color scheme, New name, new attitude, uh, and maybe not new attitude. Anyway, same old show, new name. That is all for me. Heading over uh, to Duke Siebert's with Julia. She's uh, saying sentences. She is very independent at her daycare school. Waves me away and says goodbye in the morning like she wants nothing to do with me, as if she's already a teenager with her independence. So head over to Duke Siebert's with Julia. She's a little over two for some chicken in the pot and some matzo ball soup with Larry King and Duke.